Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hare. When developing a coastal marine nature-based solutions project, it's not enough to just assume you're having a positive impact. You also need to measure it and prove it. This process of monitoring, reporting and verification, often shortened to MRV, is crucial on all sides. Project developers need to get the data from the ground. Standards need to ensure methodologies and processes are robust and avoid greenwashing. And investors need to be aware of the costs. So today, we'll find out how this process works, what impacts can be measured and reported on, and what are the biggest challenges. We'll look partly through the lens of carbon credits and bring together the whole chain of people involved, seller, certifier, and buyer. Today, my guests are Whitney Johnston, Director of Ocean Sustainability at software company Salesforce. Hello, thank you for having me. Maggie Kim, CEO of the Gold Standard Foundation, a nonprofit that sets standards for carbon emissions and more. Hello, nice to be with you. And Devon Wardwell, Director of Growth at the Woodland Development Organization, Forest Carbon. Hi, Dorothy, thanks for having me. Yeah, wonderful to have all three of you here today. Whitney, I want to start with you. Salesforce is a software company and isn't directly linked to oceans or nature-based solutions. So can you tell us why is this important for Salesforce? It's really important what you pointed out. You know, is it directly, is it indirectly related to nature-based solutions? And the answer is surprisingly simple. We are in a climate emergency, and the impacts of this emergency get personal very quickly for individuals and for businesses alike, regardless of the type of business. So that's the point of view we're bringing. The ocean, in particular, is one of our biggest allies in this fight, and that's where nature-based solutions and carbon credits come in. At Salesforce, we're interested in blue carbon projects, in fact, um, and this is why we've set a goal to purchase 1 million tons of high-quality blue carbon credits over the next few years. And I want to emphasize that this investment in nature-based solutions is one part of a comprehensive climate action plan, an action plan that first and foremost involves reducing our own carbon emissions and also using all the tools available to us to enable our customers and our suppliers and our peers to do the same. So I just wanted to kind of um, articulate that it's a multifaceted climate action plan and our work on nature-based solutions and carbon credits is one piece of that. Well, we'll come back to some of the, the points you, you raised just now, but maybe handing over to Maggie, what is the role of an organization like the gold standard vis-a-vis -vis impact reporting? Whitney mentioned the critical piece that, that we're here to address climate urgency. And when we talk about climate urgency, I tend to gain interest by the broader audience. But immediately when I get to impact reporting, that's when I lose half of them. And I, I try to think about why is it that people take impact reporting as slightly 
a technical topic or a, a topic that's just for experts. I really want to stress the fact that impact reporting is about much more than just reporting outcomes at the end of a project or a program. It helps to reduce or avoid risk and maximize positive impact. And and goal standards role starts at the very beginning and is embedded. Throughout the process of a project or a program, so upfront are eligibility criteria, safeguards, and local stakeholder consultation requirements help to ensure that all the investments go where funds are genuinely needed, and additional to avoid greenwashing for impact investment. And also, our impact quantification methodologies provide an accurate measurement of what has actually been accomplished. And and finally, there's an important piece around impact verification, where the verification process provides assurance that a project isn't just claiming as it wishes, but the impact claims are backed up by a qualified independent third party. And what is the interest you see from sort of different stakeholders vis-a-vis impact reporting? Is it mainstream already, or is there some additional? Effort that really needs to happen. That we need to see more rigorous reporting across the board. I, I see positive trend in the last few years, but I, I still think there's challenges around it, and and more importantly, there's a need for broader communication. Why this impact reporting is important, and how this is not a exposed sort of exercise, but an embedded process and an integrated process that helps you to build. Design, monitor a, a project that's going to be most impactful. So, Devon, from your angle, why is impact reporting important? Yeah, I think for us, you know, we are a carbon credit producer, but we don't see our company that way. We see ourselves as a forest restoration and conservation company, and carbon credits are the way that we can monetize what we do, and that's currently the best mechanism. And you know, the mechanism might have flaws, but it it really is the only thing that's working right now to save forests, and so. We use impact reporting and the standards that uh, have designed the monitoring, verification, reporting systems to ensure the quality of what we produce in the market. And so that gives companies like Salesforce assurance that we're actually doing what we say we do. And can you give us an example of projects that you are directly involved in? Yeah. Um, so we work primarily in Indonesia. We focus on uh, degraded wetland forests and we restore those areas back to their original state. And they, these areas have often been uh, degraded by uh, uh, forest fires or commercial logging. There are canals that are built in these areas to extract the timber. And when you have a canal built in a wetland area, it drains all the water out. And so we come in and we build dams to retain water in these wetland areas and try to restore them to their original hydrological state. And so we've got uh, 22,000 hectares under management in South Sumatra in Indonesia, and uh, we've been restoring that area for the last five years. And who are the people that that gather the data? If we take it really to the ground, can you explain a little bit to the listeners how that's happening on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, our project produces carbon credits on the basis of how much we raise up the water tables to their original state. So we've modeled out, you know, what the kind of baseline or Uh, scenario without the project would be and what would happen to that area if it were just continued to be unmanaged. That requires a, you know, a hundred year fire model that we look at, you know, how much of that peatland will burn. And everyone probably knows by now that peat is a massive source of greenhouse gas emissions when it burns. 
And then we come in and we monitor how well we've done restoring these water table levels. And, you know, traditionally that's done by actually going out and taking a, a dip well measurement. You actually go and you put a, a ruler down into the water. And, you know, as the site regenerates, that actually gets really difficult because you can't walk around in the site like you used to, because what we're doing is restoring the forest and making it more difficult to travel within the site. And so we actually bought a small uh, sensor company that designs water table sensors and they're rigged to the Internet and they're placed all over the project site. And that feeds data back up to our central dashboard and we get daily water table uh, level results. And then that data is tabulated and presented to external auditors, which then verify that data against the requirements of the standard that we use, which is similar to the gold standard. Yeah, interesting. Well, Maggie, if you hear this story, where in a process like the one that Devin just explained is a company like the gold standard coming into the verification process? We're basically in the front end where we set the standard. So the requirements and design requirements for a project to qualify as gold standard project. But also we're heavily involved in the implementation requirements for implementation and an MRV. So as a standard body, we would have informed projects requirements for implementation and MRV. And then its assurance process would verify the climate impact, either its uh, emissions reduction or carbon removals and then issue carbon credits accordingly. So in terms of collecting and, and verifying data, the project developer would have to propose a monitoring plan that is approved by gold standard. And then the developer would also follow gold standard approved methodologies to set their project baseline and to measure the positive impact they deliver against that baseline. And data collection varies from various stages of the project and project types. And Whitney, hearing this, what is your reaction to, you know, hearing examples and being the one at the end of the pipeline wanting to buy credits like this? What's your reaction? Well, it's so exciting to hear about this work that's being done, because I think one of the key things that we're looking for or grappling with as this market is emerging and developing and evolving as buyers in this emerging market is, um, is confidence and trust. I was actually just explaining this um, yesterday, the challenge that we're facing to my husband. I was like, I was trying to buy, I'm going to use it a personal example. I was trying to buy a snowsuit for my daughter last week. And I found a great snowsuit at a low price online. It had all the features I wanted, the hood, the booties, the mittens. And as I was carrying out the process of purchasing this, they asked for my social security number which is a very highly confidential piece of information. I immediately lost confidence in the platform. I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot carry out this transaction. So I switched to a platform, a company, a vendor that I trust that I know. I probably spent a little bit more, um, but I switched to a, to a platform that I had confidence in and I went and purchased that snowsuit. And the same principle applies when you're purchasing carbon credits. The buyer is looking for confidence in the quality of the carbon accounting, as we've been talking about, and also assurance that the impacts of the project will be positive for the community and for biodiversity. This is why Maggie's work is so important. This is why Devin's work is so important. And this is why Salesforce has co-created a business alliance for scaling climate solutions so that we can come together and, as businesses and as buyers and learn from one another and learn in this evolving marketplace. And within this business alliance, 
we are actually formulating a Blue Carbon Buyers Alliance, which is really exciting. And the intention here is to set up a place where we can learn quickly together and we can act together at scale with confidence. Yeah, the the point of sort of the trust, the high quality comes through very clearly. But then often this process has sort of the reputation of being burdensome and rather expensive. So Devon, what is your reaction to that? Yeah, I don't actually think we, we don't see it as a burden at our company. We see it as the cost of doing business. You know, we're fundamentally working within a market-based system and in order to make the market-based system work, there has to be quality standards and there has to be verification that's conducted outside of our own company. And so we see this as, you know, as critical to making the markets work. It's a foundation of the market. And so I think that that's great. Where I see the flaws in the system is actually ultimately in a market-based system, the people with the money are dictating the conservation strategy, right? And so because there's this demand and pull dynamic Companies like Microsoft get to determine how conservation companies are investing. You know, are they investing in tree planting or you know, conservation of standing forests? And the you know the recent drive towards uh, focusing on removals credits versus avoidance credits. You know, that's that's seeing a shift in behavior and the types of ecosystems that are being protected. And so, I am very happy with the quality standards and I'd like just to see more dialogue between the kind of the market makers and the demand side and the people that are doing the work on the ground. I see both Maggie and Whitney wanting to jump in. Maggie, maybe you first and then we go to Whitney. Yes, um, maybe I'll come back to the demand side of the story later. Um, But I think, um, Dorothy, you do raise a point of the complexity and and burdensome because often we work with small scale micro scale project developers who who really find the process burdensome for example um and therefore end up going to bigger project developers to bundle the projects to reduce the cost or or decide not to go through the process because of the the complexity or the cost of it and of course there are many project developers who who think like devin so I, I think there is still a role for a standard body like gold standard to play to support that process because complexity of MRV varies across project types. So, for example, for the energy processes like renewable energy or waste to energy, it's much more straightforward, whereas nature-based solutions or ocean projects or blue carbon projects do tend to have more complex monitoring and verification processes. So, but really, we're trying to shift this complexity to our side and support with digital solutions. And Devin briefly mentioned this as well. So some of the early approaches are happening in the nature-based solution space. For example, a project developer uh, uh, has brought forward a methodology for mangrove uh, planting-assisted natural regeneration, which will include remote sensing options, which we at Gold Standard expect to pilot this quarter. So I think there's a collective effort needed by different stakeholders of the market to digitize and, and make sure that we reduce that entry barrier for smaller projects in, in Global South. And I also wanted to build on this. I think you put it really nicely, Maggie. Um, you know, I mentioned the importance of the confidence and trust, right? But that's just one piece of the puzzle. And I also mentioned the importance of getting the funds to the communities and to the ecosystems that matter. And one of those pieces is really creating a system that 
wherein local communities have equitable access to this market. And as it's currently constructed, there are barriers to entry to bringing your carbon project to the market and then realizing the flow of revenue back to your community. And so this is really key. And this is where I think that there's room for further innovation, that we need to test our assumptions and really push against the um, push the envelope, really, to further improve and, and always be innovating. And so this is one of the reasons why we are also supporting partners for a blue carbon challenge, uh, innovation challenge, really. And this, this challenge is on an uplink platform with the World Economic Forum. And the uplink platform is essentially a platform for gathering innovative solutions from around the globe from ecopreneurs. And it's a platform that that Salesforce set up in partnership with World Economic Forum. And we have about 61 solutions that we're really excited that were just submitted. And we're really excited to review those. And hopefully these innovative solutions will be able to tackle some of those, those technical challenges that Maggie articulated and help lower the barrier to entry ultimately for these local communities so that they can realize the flow of capital to the community to the ecosystems and really keep our eye on the ball of like having the impact ultimately that we need to for people and for planet, for biodiversity, for climate. I just wanted to react to Maggie's comment because I think it's spot on in terms of where the sector is. You know, I think there really is a a carbon equity issue where community-based organizations can't tap into carbon revenue. And, you know, from where I, I sit in terms of the technology solutions I see, that's not bringing the cost down. It's making it work better, but it's still extremely expensive. And I think it's hopefully because we're in the early days and, you know, you see more evolution of technology products and more competition. Hopefully that drives the, the cost down. But, you know, something that I've, I've thought of for a while is potentially piggybacking projects. So you could have a large scale commercial project and then, you know, contiguous with that area, you have a community based forest and you can take the operations and the team that is working on the large scale project, you know, we, we can't work below 20,000 hectares because it just doesn't make sense commercially. And think of all the areas that are two, 3,000 hectares that are, you know, incredibly biodiverse that are getting left behind with the, you know, with this approach. And so- Or even smaller. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially when you look at mangrove areas, you know, you're looking at small patches that are incredibly, uh, incredibly important from an ecological standpoint, yet, you know, they can't be put under a carbon business model. And so- you know, we even proposed and were funded by IECN for this piggyback approach where we had a peatland restoration site and in front of that was a coastal mangrove ecosystem. And, you know, the coastal mangrove ecosystem might not work financially on its own, but if you piggyback that with a larger project, it can work. And so, you know, for me, I, I, I am interested in seeing how you can engage community-based forestry and these community organizations in leveraging carbon revenue because it it's not currently possible from what I see in Indonesia. So Maggie, what is your reaction? Also thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about carbon, but what about measuring sort of other impacts beyond carbon and how can we link that better with the community needs that Devin just also outlined? Absolutely. We know that so many of the sustainable development goals are interconnected. So that means we need to look carefully where there may be trade-offs required. For example, in some regions, planting trees can compromise water access downstream in the watershed. So those risk assessments and and trade-offs where necessary must be carefully managed. 
But there's tremendous opportunity on the positive side. It only makes sense to look holistically across the relevant areas of impact to deliver as much positive change as possible. And and this is certainly relevant in nature-based solutions or, or blue carbon projects where carbon sequestration may in fact be the least material of the positive impacts when you consider new employment, improved livelihoods, gender equality, better health, food security, uh, climate resilience or or critical habitat conservation. So for gold standard, all carbon projects, they must contribute to a minimum of three SDGs and, and all monitored and independently verified. But many of our projects, and we're seeing that in recent years, deliver far beyond this this minimum bar that we set. So Devon, again, maybe a glimpse from the field about the other impacts. How important is it for the project as a whole? Again, how do you go about measuring some of these non-carbon benefits uh, on the ground? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the two co-benefits that most companies are looking for is, is biodiversity and community. And the, the biodiversity is uh, more simple than the community one to measure. You can set camera traps, you can develop transects to monitor a population occurrence of, you know, your, your key species that are being monitored and ultimately restoring the, the habitat and protecting those ecosystem services that the animals rely on is, is the best strategy that you can deploy to maintain or hopefully enhance biodiversity occurrence. On the community side, you know, I think it's important to remember that these are 30 year projects that we run and we don't want to make the same mistakes as some, you know, NGO development uh, social organizations have made in the space in the past. And, and I'm saying that because I, I worked for, you know, nonprofits and NGOs in West Africa for about 10 years before coming to Forest Carbon. And so for us, the first couple of years of a project are really just about data collection and relationship building. So we don't actually come in and deploy a lot of funds quickly. It's more about conducting FPIC, the, the license to operate, getting the permission and the buy-in of the communities to support the project. Then it's educating them about why we're here and you know what we're doing. And that's a, a long-term relationship building exercise. And if you deploy funds into the community right away during that process, it actually makes it more difficult and complicated. And so you know, after we've got the data that we need to develop programming, then we can kind of engage the communities and help them form into groups to make their own decisions about what investments they want to make with the funds that we're providing. Well, Devin, I, I wanted to come back to a point you made before about better dialogue between sort of the different stakeholders and, and sort of entities involved in this impact measuring verification, whether it's carbon or beyond. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you would like to see more happen in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately the the subject of monitoring, reporting, verification is the subject of carbon credit quality, right? And so what makes a good carbon credit? And there's there's a lot of intangibles that go along with the measurables. And I think for, for me, dialogue on what those intangibles are and what they look like would be really helpful because the market is evolving for carbon credits and uh, it's not evolving 100% in a way that's supported above what we need to accomplish to be able to prevent climate change in, in Indonesia where we work. You know, I think for us, the most important thing that we can do is to protect and restore every hectare of peatland that's going to catch on fire. If Indonesia's peat fires were a country, they'd be the fourth largest emitter in the world just from peat fires alone. And so it's a massive source of greenhouse gas emissions, and we need to be able to incentivize landowners to protect that. And if you have a, a sector that's moving away from 
avoided emissions and more towards removals, which requires active enrichment planting, then uh, there's less economic incentive to protect those peatland areas. And it creates uh, a market diversion from what, you know, what we see needs to happen on the ground. Maggie, how do you, do you agree with that analysis? I, I completely agree. And, and just to add to what Devin has said, I think there is a need for more capacity building support for those communities. And exactly what Devin said, the dialogue to understand that intangibles and, and to inform and, and align with the communities that the project's taking place, how this will change their sustainable sort of livelihood, their future, their living, their families. And I, I think that capacity building is often sort of have all the project developers bear the burden of that. And I think that's where the international communities, including our the standards, but also the monitoring and verification bodies, and also uh, organizations like IUCN can come in to support in that capacity building sense. And Whitney, is that something that could be part of the projects you might support? The capacity building side? This is definitely something that we're we're looking for when we're looking at projects and, and exploring which projects we might be able to um, invest in is we're looking for projects that take a holistic approach that are community led. <laughs> um, so we're we're thinking about community. We're thinking about ecology as well as the carbon, especially for me as an oceanographer, I'm thinking, you know, how is this ecosystem supposed to work? Where you know, is the methodology or the approach or the technique rooted in science, for one thing? And I think Devin touched on this, the importance of, uh, of having a technique that is specific to the location based on the stressor. And so in some cases, that might mean not necessarily planting, but maybe it's moving mud and getting dirty and <laughs> really restoring the hydrology and the flow of sediment, the flow of water into that area. Uh, so one of those things, you know, kind of taking a holistic view, ecology is one piece and then community is the other piece, ensuring that the project design and ownership and management is community led and that the systems are in place to ensure that the majority of the revenue really arrives in the hands of the community and um, addresses their needs locally. Devon, looking a bit into the future, what are some of the trends you're seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think there's, uh, you know, an increasing amount of organizations that are focused on carbon credit quality and they're competing and coming into, um, you know, opposition sometimes with the standards. And it seems to me that this is a risk for us as a developer because we have additional carbon credit quality requirements that are put on top of the standards. And then we also have startups and companies that are supposed to be rating the quality of carbon credits that don't actually understand how uh, we do the work on the ground. And so I think that's a risk for us as a company. And it's also a risk for the standards bodies because some of the uh, focus on carbon credit quality is being put on these new startups and these new companies with lots of funding rather than just improving the current standards that we have. Do you concur with that, Maggie? I 100% agree with Devin's uh, observation and, and his thoughts around it. I, the thing is, fragmentation is inevitable. And we've seen uh, blurry lines between now compliance markets and voluntary carbon markets. Now with Article 6 rules being agreed, um, there will be sort of new era of markets coming forward. And, and 
governments are creating their own carbon markets or regional markets. So rightly so, there will be various or fragmented quality requirements for those markets. And and for me, it, it is a threat and a risk, but also it's an opportunity for a standard body like Gold Standard to take that holistic approach. So gold standard should mean gold standard in whichever market it operates. Because at the end of the day, we're promising one ton of CO2 as a credit, and it's going to be monetized and traded. So um, Whitney talked about going sometimes slower to go faster. I agree because carbon credits, there's no shortcut. There's a lot to do for the current market stakeholders to improve, but there's no shortcut to getting a carbon credit. So to me, Gold Standard has always been very vocal in raising the bar in terms of quality. There are global initiatives like the task force of scaling the voluntary carbon market, um, the voluntary carbon market integrity initiative. All of these initiatives are sort of coming up to define, help define that quality, what that means. But it's what it's really doing is it's setting the floor and basically weeding out the truly poor quality credits, including those that are not issued by an internationally recognized standard. So so I think um, for future as market fragments, um, we as standard bodies and our stakeholders need to make sure that we push the standards to be comprehensive, to be applied in different uh, markets with same kind of rigor or even more ambitious rigor and that that stays and that's not pushed out of the market. So Whitney, I gave you the first, but I'll also give you the last question. So hearing all of this, are you still excited about blue carbon credits and hopefully impacts beyond? Absolutely. What I'm hearing is that we do have a lot of innovation and creative ideas and passionate people coming to the table to try and solve this problem together. And what I see as the opportunity in this very moment is for us and this for this community of practice to listen and learn from one another. And I think if we really stay focused on crafting the problem statement <laughs> together and articulating our vision together, both things can be true, that we need rigor and we need standards and we also need equitable access and we also need efficiencies. Both things are true. And if we hold all of those, that ambition, that collective ambition together, I really believe that we can innovate through that and that we can find solutions that work. So I think it's an exciting moment and it's really a moment for us all to come together and learn from one another. Thank you to my guests this week, Whitney Johnston, Maggie Kim, and Devon Wardwell. Tune in next time for a crucial discussion on working with local stakeholders. Everyone agrees on the need for close collaboration with coastal communities as a key to success. But what does that actually mean? Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of ICN's Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Michelle Burnett. Follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more about what the BNCFF does, please visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. Until next time, I'm Dorothy Hare. Thanks for listening. <laughs>